0: Did you hear what I was playing, Lane? I didn't think it polite
1: to listen, sir. Well, I'm sorry for that, for your sake. I don't play accurately, but I play with wonderful expression. When it comes to the piano, sentiment is my forte. I keep science for life. Yes, sir. Uh, speaking of the science of life, have you got the cucumber sandwiches, which is cut to Lady Bracknell? Yes, sir. <laughs> By the way, Lane your book that on Thursday night when Lord Shorman and Mr. Worthing were dining with me, eight bottles of champagne are entered as having been consumed? Yes, sir. Eight bottles of the pint. Why is it that at a bachelor's establishment the servants invariably drink the champagne? I ask merely for information.
0: I attribute it to the superior quality of the wine, sir. I've often observed that in married households the champagne is rarely a first-rate brand. Good heavens. Is
1: marriage so demoralizing as that?
0: I believe it is a very pleasant day, sir. I've had very little experience of it myself up to the present. I've only been married once, and that was in consequence of a misunderstanding between myself and a young person. Hmm.
1: I don't know that I'm very much interested in your family
0: life, Lane. No, sir, it's not a very interesting subject. I never think of it myself. Very natural, I'm sure. Thank you, Lane, that will do. Thank you, sir.
1: Lane's views on marriage seem somewhat lax. Hmm. Really, if the lower orders don't set us a good example, what on earth is the use of them? They seem, as a class, to have no sense of moral responsibility.
0: Mr. Ernest Worthing. How
1: are you, my dear Ernest?
0: What brings you up to town?
2: Oh, pleasure, pleasure. What should bring one anywhere. Eating as usual, I see, Algy.
1: I believe it is customary in good society to have some slight refreshment at five o'clock. Where have you been since last Thursday? In the country. What on earth do you do there?
2: When one is in town, one amuses oneself. When one is in the country, one amuses other people. And It who? is excessively boring.
1: And, and who are the people you amuse?
2: Oh, neighbors, neighbors.
1: Got nice neighbors in your part of Shropshire.
2: Perfectly horrid. Never speak to one of them.
1: How immensely you must amuse them. By the way, Shropshire is your county, is it not?
2: Hey, Shropshire? Oh, why, yes, of course. Hello. Why all these cups? Why cucumber sandwiches? Why such reckless extravagance in one so young? Who is coming to tea?
1: Oh, merely Aunt Augusta and Gwendolyn.
2: Oh, how perfectly delightful.
1: Yes, that is all very well, but I'm not quite sure that Aunt Augusta will approve of your being here.
2: May I ask why?
1: My dear fellow, the way you flirt with Gwendolyn is perfectly scandalous. It is almost as bad as the way Gwendolyn flirts with you.
2: I'm in love with Gwendolyn. I've come up to town expressly to propose to her.
1: Thought you said you had come for pleasure. I call that business.
2: How utterly unromantic you are.
1: I really don't see anything romantic in proposing. It is very romantic to be in love, but there's nothing romantic about a definite proposal. Why, one may be accepted when it usually is, I believe, and then the excitement is all over. The very essence of romance is uncertainty. If I ever get married, I'll certainly try and forget the fact.
2: I have no doubt about that. The Divorce Court was specially invented for people whose memories are so curiously constituted.
1: There's no use speculating on that subject. Divorces are made in heaven. Please don't touch the cucumber sandwiches. They are ordered specially for Aunt Augusta.
2: Well, you have been eating them all the time.
1: (laughs) That is quite a different matter. She's my aunt. Have some bread and butter. The bread and butter is for Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn is quite devoted to bread and butter.
2: And a very good bread and butter, it is, too.
1: My dear fellow, you need not eat as if you were going to eat at all. You behave as if you were married to her already. You are not married to her already, and I don't think you ever will be.
2: Why on earth do you say that?
1: (laughs) Well, in the first place, women never marry the men they flirt with. Girls don't think it right.
2: That is nonsense. It isn't.
1: It is a great truth. It accounts for the extraordinary number of bachelors one sees all over the place. In the second place, I don't give my consent.
2: Your consent?
1: <laughs> my dear fellow, Gwendolyn is my first cousin, and before I allow you to marry her, you'll have to clear up the whole question of Cecily.
2: Cecily? What on earth do you mean, Algie? What do you mean by Cecily? I don't know anyone by the name of Cecily.
1: Bring me the cigarette case Lord, uh, uh, Mr. Worthing left in the smoking room last time he dined here.
0: Yes, sir.
2: Are you to let me know that you've had that cigarette case this entire time? Wish to goodness you had told me I'd been writing Frantic letters to Scotland Yard about it. I was very nearly offering a very large reward.
1: Well, I wish you would offer one. It happens to be more than usually hard up. Mm. There's
2: no use offering a large reward after the thing is found.
1: I think that is rather mean of you, Ernest, I must say. Though it makes no matter, for now that I look at the inscription inside, I see that the thing isn't yours after all.
2: Of course it's mine. You've seen me with it a hundred times. And you have no right whatsoever to read what's written inside. It's a very ungentlemanly thing to read a private cigarette case. It's always
1: absurd to have a hard and fast rule about what one should read and what one shouldn't. More than half of modern culture depends on what one shouldn't read.
2: I'm perfectly aware of the fact that I don't propose to discuss modern culture. It isn't the sort of thing that one should talk of in private. Mm -hmm. I simply want my cigarette case back. Yes,
1: but this isn't your cigarette case. This cigarette case is a gift from someone of the name of Cecily, and you said you didn't know anyone of that name.
2: Well, if you must know, Cecily happens to be my aunt.
1: Your aunt?
2: Mm. Yes, charming old lady she is too. It at Tunbridge Wells. Just give it back to me, Algie.
1: What? Does your aunt call herself Little Cecily? From Little Cecily with her fondest love. Mm.
2: My dear Algie, what on earth is there on that? Some aunts are tall, some aunts are not tall. Surely that isn't matter that every aunt should be allowed to decide for herself. You seem to think that every aunt should be exactly like
1: your aunt. But why does your aunt call you her uncle? There is no objection I admit to an aunt being a small aunt, but why an aunt will call her own nephew her uncle, I can't quite make out. (coughs) Sorry, those cucumber sandwiches. From little Cecily, with her fondest love, to her dear Uncle Jack. Besides, your name isn't Jack at all. It is Ernest.
2: It isn't Ernest. It's Jack.
1: You have always told me it was Ernest. (coughs) I've introduced you to everyone as Ernest. You answer to the name of Ernest, you look as if your name was Ernest. You're the most Ernest-looking person I ever saw in my life. It's perfectly absurd your saying your name isn't Ernest. It's on your cards. Here is one of them. Mr. Ernest Worthing, b the Albany. I'll keep this as evidence your name is Ernest, in case you ever try to deny it to me, or to Gwendolyn, or to anyone else.
2: Well, my name is Ernest in town, and Jack in the country. And the cigarette case was given to me in the country.
1: Yes, but that does not explain why your small Aunt Cecily, who lives at Tunbridge Wells, calls you her dear uncle, boy, You'd better have the thing out at once
2: do you talk exactly as if you were a dentist. It is a very vulgar thing to talk like a dentist when one isn't a dentist. It produces a false impression. Well,
1: well, that is exactly what dentists always do. Now, go on. I may mention that I have always suspected you of being a confirmed and secret bummerist, and I'm quite sure of it now.
2: What on earth do you mean by that?
1: I will reveal to you the meaning of that incomparable expression as soon as you are kind enough to inform me why you are earnest in town and jack in the country.
2: My dear Algie, I don't know whether you will be able to appreciate my true motives.
1: Hmm.
2: Produce my cigarette case first.
1: There it is. Now produce your explanation and pray make it improbable.
2: My dear boy, there's nothing improbable about it. In fact, it is perfectly ordinary. The old Mr. Thomas Cardew, who adopted me when I was a young boy, made me, in his will, guardian to his granddaughter, Miss Cecily Cardew. Miss Cecily Cardew, who addresses me by uncle out of motives of respect you could not possibly appreciate, lives at my place in the country under the care of her admiral governess, Miss Prism.
1: Where is that place in the country, by the way?
2: That is nothing to you, dear boy, for you are not to be invited. I may tell you candidly, that is not in Shropshire.
1: I suspected that, my dear fellow. I have bunburied all over Shropshire on two separate occasions. Mm -hmm. Now go on. Why are you earnest in town and jack in the country?
2: My dear Algy, I don't know whether you'll be able to understand my true motives. You are hardly serious enough. When one is placed in the position of guardian, one has to adopt a very high moral tone on all subjects. It is one's duty to do so. And as a very high moral tone can hardly be said to conduce very much to either one's health or one's happiness, I have, in order to get up to town whenever I please, invented a younger brother by the name of Ernest, who lives in the Albany and gets in the most dreadful scrapes. That, my dear boy, is the whole truth, pure and simple.
1: The truth is rarely pure and never simple. Modern life would be very tedious if it were either, and modern literature a complete impossibility.
2: Now that wouldn't be at all a bad thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Literary criticism is not your forte, my dear fellow. Don't try it. You should leave that to people who haven't been at a university. They do it so well in the daily papers. What you really are is a Bunburyist. I was quite right in saying you're a Bunburyist. You are one of the most advanced Bunburyists I know.
3: What on earth
2: do you mean, Algie, by Bunburyist?
1: You have invented a rather useful younger brother called Ernest in order that you may be able to come up to town as often as you like. I have invented an invaluable permanent invalid called Bunbury in order that I may be able to go down into the country whenever I choose. Bunbury is perfectly invaluable. If it weren't for Bunbury's extraordinary bad health, for instance, I wouldn't be able to dine with you at Willis's tonight, where I have been really engaged to Aunt Augusta for more than a week.
2: I haven't asked you to dine with me anywhere tonight.
1: I know. You are absurdly careless about giving out invitations. It is very foolish of you. Nothing annoys people so much as not receiving invitations.
2: You had much better dine with your Aunt Augusta.
1: I haven't the smallest intention of doing anything of the kind. For one thing, I dine there on Monday, and once a week is quite enough to dine with one's own relatives. In the second place, whenever I do dine there, I'm treated as a member of the family and sent down with either no woman at all or two. In the third place, I know exactly whom she'll place me next to tonight she will place me next to Mary Farquhar, who always flirts with her own husband across the dinner table. That is not very pleasant. Indeed, it is not even decent. And that sort of thing is enormously on the increase. The amount of women in London who flirt with their own husbands is perfectly scandalous. It looks so bad. It is simply washing one's clean linen in public. Besides, Now that I know you to be a confirmed Bunburyist, I naturally want to talk to you about bunburying. I want to tell you the rules.
2: I am certainly not a Bunburyist. If Gwendolyn accepts me, I'll kill my brother Ernest. In fact, I think I'll kill him in any case. Cecily is becoming a little too much attached to him and is rather a bore. Hmm. So I will get rid of Ernest, and I strongly advise you to do the same with Mr. With your invalid friend with the absurd name.
1: Nothing will induce me to part with Bunbury. And if you ever do get married, which seems to me extremely problematic, you'll be very <laughs> glad to know Bunbury.
2: That is nonsense. If I married a charming girl like Gwendolyn, and she's only the only girl in the entire world that I would ever want to marry, I certainly wouldn't want to know Bunbury.
1: Then your wife will. You don't seem to realize, my dear fellow, that in married life three is company and two is none.
2: That, my dear young fellow, is the theory that the corrupt French drama has been propounding for the last fifty years. Yes,
1: and that the happy English home has proved in half the time. Mm. That must be Aunt Augusta. Only relatives or creditors ever bring in that Wagnerian manner. <laughs> now. If I get her out of the way for ten minutes, in order that you may have an opportunity for proposing to Gwendolyn, will you dine with me tonight at Willis's?
2: I suppose, if you want to.
1: Yes, but you must be serious about it. I hate people who aren't serious about meals. It is very shallow of them.
0: Lady Bracknell,
4: at the of Good afternoon, dear Algernon. I hope you are behaving very
1: well. I'm feeling very well, Aunt Augusta.
4: That is not quite the same thing. In fact, the two things rarely go together.
1: Dear me, you are smart.
4: I am
5: always smart, aren't I, Mr. Worthing?
2: You're quite perfect, Miss Fairfax.
5: Oh, I hope I am not that. It would leave no room for developments, and I intend
4: to develop in many directions. I'm sorry if we are a little late, Algernon. I was obliged to call on dear Lady Harbury. I hadn't seen her since her poor husband's death. I never saw a woman so altered. She looks quite twenty years younger. Now, I'll have a cup of tea and one of those nice cucumber sandwiches you promised me.
1: Certainly, Aunt Augusta.
4: Hmm. Gwendolyn, won't you come and sit here? Thanks,
0: Mama. I'm quite comfortable where I am. Good heavens!
1: Lane! Why are there no cucumber sandwiches?
0: There were no cucumbers in the market this morning, sir. I went down twice. No <laughs>
1: cucumbers?
0: No, sir. Not even for bedding. Thank you, Lane. That will do.
1: <laughs> Thank you,
0: sir. I am
1: greatly distressed, Aunt Augusta, about there being no cucumbers, not even for ready money.
4: It really makes no matter, Algernon. I was able to have some crumpets with Lady Harbury, who seems to be living entirely for pleasure now.
1: I hear her hair has turned quite
4: gold from grief. It certainly has changed its color, from what cause I, of course, cannot say. Thank you. I've quite a treat for you tonight, Algernon. I'm going to send you down with Mary Farquhar. She is such a nice
1: woman, and so attentive to her husband. It really is delightful to watch them. I'm afraid, Aunt Augusta, I shall have to give up the pleasure of dining with you tonight after all. Oh, I hope not, Algernon. It would throw my table completely out.
4: Your uncle would have to dine upstairs. Fortunately, he's accustomed to that.
1: It is a great bore, and I need hardly say a terrible disappointment to me, but the fact is I've just had a telegram about my... Poor friend Bunbury, saying he's very ill again. They seem to think I should be with him. It is very strange. This
4: Mr. Bunbury seems to suffer from curiously bad health.
1: Yes, Bunbury is a dreadful invalid.
4: Well, I must say, Algernon, I think it high time that Mr. Bunbury make up his mind whether he's going to live or to die. This shilly-showing about the question is absurd. Nor do I in any way condone the modern notion of sympathy with invalids? I consider it morbid. (laughs) Illness of any kind is hardly a thing to be encouraged in others. Health is the primary duty of life. I'm always telling that to your poor uncle, but he never seems to take much notice as far as any change in his ailments goes. (laughs) I would be much obliged if you would ask Mr. Bunbury from me if he would kindly refrain from having a relapse on Saturday, for I rely on you to arrange my music for me. It's my last reception, and one wants something that will encourage conversation, particularly at the end of the season, when everyone has practically said whatever it is that they wanted to say, which in most cases was probably not much.
1: I'll speak to Bummery on Augusta if he's still conscious, and I think I can promise you he'll be all right by Saturday. Of course, the music is a great difficulty. You see, if one plays good music, people don't listen, and if one plays bad music, people don't talk. Uh, but if you'll kindly accompany me to the next room for a moment, I'll show you the program I have drawn up. Thank
4: you. I'm sure the program will be delightful with a few expurgations. French songs I cannot possibly allow. People always seem to think they are improper and look shocked, which is vulgar, or laugh, which is worse. But German seems a thoroughly respectable language, and I believe is so. Gwendolyn, you will accompany me. Certainly, Mama.
2: A charming day Uh, it has been, Miss Fairfax.
4: Pray
5: don't talk to me about the weather, Mr. Worthing. Whenever people talk to me about the weather, I feel quite certain that they mean something else. And that makes me so nervous.
2: I do mean something else.
5: I thought so. In fact, I am never wrong.
2: I would like to be allowed to take advantage of Lady Bracknell's temporary absence. I
5: would certainly advise you do so. Mama has a way of coming back suddenly into a room that I've often had to speak to her about.
2: Gwendolyn, ever since I've met you, I've admired you more than any girl I've ever met, since I've met you.
5: Yes, I'm quite aware of the fact, and I often wish that, in public at any rate, you had been more demonstrative. For me, you've always had an irresistible fascination. Even before I met you, I was far from indifferent to you. We live, as I hope you know, Mr. Worthing, in an age of ideals. The fact is constantly mentioned in more expensive monthly magazines, and has reached the provincial pulpits, I'm told. And my ideal has always been to love someone of the name of Ernest. Something in that name inspires absolute confidence. The moment Algernon first mentioned to me that he had a friend called Ernest, I knew I was destined to love you.
2: Then you really do love me, Gwendolyn.
5: Passionately.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Darling, you don't know how happy you've made me.
5: My own Ernest.
2: But... You don't mean to say that you couldn't love me if my name wasn't Ernest?
5: But your name is Ernest.
2: Yes, of course it is, I know that, but supposing it was something else, you're not saying that you couldn't love me then.
5: Ah, that is clearly a metaphysical speculation, and, like most metaphysical speculations, has very little reference to the actual facts of real life as we know them.
2: To tell the truth, darling, I don't... Care much for the name of Ernest. I never thought that the name really suited me at all.
5: It suits you perfectly. It is a divine name. It has a music of its own, it produces vibrations.
2: <sighs> Frankly, Gwendolyn, I think there are other much nicer names out there, like Jack, for instance, is a perfectly charming name.
5: Jack? No, there is very little music in the name Jack, if any at all, indeed. It does not thrill. It produces absolutely no vibrations. I have known several Jacks, and they all, without exception, were more than usually plain. Besides, Jack is a notorious domesticity for John, and I pity any woman who is married to a man called John. She could probably never understand the entrancing pleasure of a single moment's solitude. The only really safe name is Ernest.
2: Gwendolyn and I must get christened at once. I mean, we must get married at once.
5: Married, Mr.
2: Worthing? Why, yes, of course. You know that I love you, and you've led me to believe that you're not entirely indifferent towards me.
5: I adore you, but you have not proposed to me yet. Nothing at all has been said about marriage. The subject has not even been touched on.
2: Well, may I propose to you now?
5: I think it would be an admirable opportunity. And to spare you any possible disappointment, Mr. Worthing, I feel it only fair to tell you quite frankly beforehand that I am fully determined to accept you.
2: Gwendolyn.
5: Yes, Mr. Worthing, what have you got to say to me?
2: You know what I've got to say to you.
5: Yes, but you don't say it.
2: Gwendolyn, will you marry me? Of
5: course I will, darling. (laughs) How long you have been about it. I'm afraid you have very little experience in how to propose.
2: My own one. You're the only one that I've ever loved in the whole world.
5: Yes, but men often propose for practice. I know my brother Gerald does. All my girlfriends tell me so. What wonderfully brown eyes you have, Ernest. They are quite, quite brown. I hope you will always look at me just like that, especially when there are other people present.
0: Mm.
4: Gwendolyn, what does this mean? Rise, sir, from this semi-recumbent posture. Mamma, I must beg you
5: to retire. This is no place for you. Besides, Mr. Worthing is not quite finished yet. Not finished what, may I ask? I am engaged to Mr. Worthing, Mama.
4: Pardon me, you are not engaged to anyone. When you do become engaged to someone, I or your father, should his health permit him, will inform you of the fact. An engagement should come upon a young girl as a surprise, pleasant or unpleasant as the case may be. It's hardly a matter that a young girl should be allowed to arrange for herself. And now I have a few questions to put to you, Mr. Worthy. While I'm making these questions, uh, these inquiries, you, Gwendolyn, will wait for me below in the carriage. Mama! In the carriage, Gwendolyn. (laughs) Gwendolyn, the carriage. Yes, Mama. You may have a seat, Mr. Worthy.
2: Thank you. Lady Ragnall, I prefer standing.
4: I feel bound to tell you that I do not have you down on my list of eligible young men, even though I have the same list that the dear Duchess of Moulton has. We work together, in fact. However, I'm quite ready to enter your name should your answers be what a truly affectionate mother requires. Do you smoke?
2: Yes, I must admit, I smoke.
4: I'm glad to hear it. A man should always have an occupation of some kind, There are far too many idle men in London as it is. How old are you?
2: 29.
4: A very good age to be married at. I've always been of the opinion that a man who desires to get married should either know everything or nothing. Which do you know?
2: I know nothing, Lady (laughs) Bracknell.
4: I'm pleased to hear it. I do not approve of anything that would tamper with natural ignorance. Ignorance is like a delicate, exotic fruit Touch it and the bloom is gone. The whole theory of modern education is radically unsound. Fortunately, in England, at any rate, it produces no effect whatsoever. Hmm. If it did, it might prove dangerous to the upper classes and lead to violence in Grosvenor Square. What is your income?
2: Between seven and eight thousand per year.
4: In land or in investments?
2: In investments, chiefly.
4: That is satisfactory. What between the duties expected of one during one's lifetime and the duties exacted from one after one's death? Land has ceased to be a profit or a pleasure. It gives one position and prevents one from keeping it up. That's all that can be said about land.
2: I do have a country house with some land, of course, attached to it, about 1,500 acres, I believe. But I don't depend on that for my real income. In fact, as far as I can tell, the poachers are the only ones who make anything out of it.
4: Uh, a country house, how many bedrooms? Well, that point can be cleared up afterwards. You have a townhouse, I hope. A girl with a simple, unspoiled nature like Gwendolyn can hardly be expected to reside in the country.
2: I own a house in Belgrade Square, but it is let by the year to Lady Bloxham. I can, of course, get it back at six months' notice.
4: Lady Bloxham, I don't know her.
2: Oh, she goes about very little. She is considerably advanced in years.
4: Nowadays, that no guarantee of respectability of character. What number in Belgrave Square?
2: One four nine.
4: Oh, the unfashionable side. I knew there was something. However, that can easily
2: be altered. Do you mean the fashion or the side?
4: Both, if necessary, I presume. What is your politics?
2: I'm afraid I have none, really. I'm a liberal unionist.
4: They count as Tories. They dine with us, or come in the evening at any rate. Now, to minor matters, are your parents living?
2: I have lost both my parents.
4: To lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, might be considered a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. Who was your father? He was evidently a man of some wealth, Was he born in what the radical papers call the purple of commerce, or did he rise from the ranks of the aristocracy?
2: I'm afraid I don't really know. You see, I said I had lost both my parents, but it would be nearer to the truth to say that my parents seem to have lost me. You see, I don't really know who I am by birth. I was, well, I was found. Found? Mm -hmm. Yes, the late Mr. Thomas Cardew, old man of a charitable disposition, found me, and gave me the name Worthing because he hadn't have a first-class ticket to Worthing at the time. Uh, you see, Worthing is a seaside resort. It is a place in Sussex.
4: And where did the charitable gentleman who had a first-class ticket to this seaside resort find you?
2: In a handbag.
4: A handbag? Mm.
2: Yes, a uh, handbag, a large black leather, an ordinary handbag, in fact, with handles to it.
4: But in what locality did this Mr. James or Thomas Cardew find this ordinary handbag?
2: In the cloakroom at Victoria Station. (laughs) It was given to him in mistake for his own. The
4: cloakroom at Victoria Station? Yes,
2: the Brighton Line.
4: The line is immaterial, Mr. (laughs) Roving. To have been born, or at any rate, bread in a handbag, whether it has handles or not, seems to me to display a contempt for the ordinary decencies of family life that reminds one of the worst successes of the French Revolution, and I presume you know what that unfortunate movement led to. As to the particular locality, a cloakroom at a railway station might serve to conceal it. Social indiscretion has probably indeed been used for such a purpose before now, but it can hardly be regarded as an assured basis for a recognized position in good society.
2: May I ask, then, what you would have me do? I need not say I would do anything in the world to ensure Gwendolyn's happiness.
4: I would strongly advise you, <laughs> Mr. Worthing, to try and acquire some relations as soon as possible, and to make every effort To produce at least one parent of either sex before the season is quite over.
2: I don't see how I I could possibly do that. I can produce the handbag at a moment's notice. It is in my dressing room at home. I don't really think that should satisfy you, Lady Bracknell.
4: Me, sir? You can hardly... What does it have to do with me? You can hardly suppose that I and Lord Bracknell would allow our only daughter, a girl brought up with utmost care, to marry into a cloakroom and form an alliance with a Mm parson. Good morning, Mr. Worthing.
2: Good morning! Algy, for goodness' sakes, would you stop playing that ghastly tune? How idiotic you are.
1: Didn't I go off All right, old boy. Mm -hmm. You don't mean to say Gwendolyn refused you. I know it is a way she has. She's always refusing people. I think it is most ill-natured of her.
2: Gwendolyn is as right as a trivet. As far as she is concerned, we are engaged. Her mother is perfectly unbearable. I've never met such a Gorgon. Of course, I don't know what a Gorgon is like, but all that I know is that she is one, for she's a monster without being a myth, which is completely unfair. Oh, I'm... Sorry, Algy, I suppose I shouldn't talk about your own aunt in front of you that way.
1: My dear fellow, I love hearing my relations abused. It's the only thing that makes me put up with them at all. Relations are simply a tedious pack of people who haven't got the remotest knowledge of how to live, nor the smallest instinct about when to die.
2: (laughs) That is nonsense. It isn't. I say it is, and I don't propose to argue about it. You're always wanting to argue about things.
1: That is exactly what things were originally made for.
2: On my word, if I thought that, I'd shoot myself. You don't think there's any chance of Gwendolyn becoming like her mother in about 150 years, do you, Algy?
1: All women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. No man does, that's his.
2: Is that clever?
1: It's perfectly phrased, and quite true as any observation in civilized life ought to be.
2: I'm sick to death of cleverness. You can't go anywhere these days without meeting clever people. It is a real public nuisance. Oh, she goodness, we've got a few fools left.
1: We have. Oh, I
2: would extremely like to meet them. What do they talk about?
1: The fools? Oh, about the clever people, of course. Mm. What fools? What about your brother? What about the profligate Ernest? Oh, that's
2: no matter. We'll be getting rid of him before the week is out. I'll say that he uh, died in Paris of apoplexy. Lots of people die of of apoplexy and quite suddenly, don't they?
1: Yes, but it's hereditary, my dear boy. It's the sort of thing that runs in families. You'd much better say a severe chill.
2: Are you sure a severe chill isn't hereditary or anything of that sort? Of course it isn't. That'll do then. I'll say my... Brother Ernest was carried off suddenly in Paris by a severe chill. That gets rid of that.
1: But I thought you said that Miss Cardew was a little too much interested in your poor brother Ernest. Won't she feel his loss a good deal?
2: No. Cecily is, I'm proud to say, not a silly romantic girl. She has a capital appetite, goes on long walks, and pays no attention at all to her lessons.
1: I should very much like to see Cecily.
2: <laughs> I will take good care that you never do.
1: She's excessively
2: pretty, and she's only just 18.
1: Have you told Gwendolyn yet that you have an excessively pretty ward who is only just 18?
2: My dear Alger, the truth isn't the sort of thing one just blurts out to people. Cecily and Gwendolyn are perfectly sure to become fast friends. I'll bet you anything you like that within half an hour of the meeting, they will be calling each other sister. even though girls only call each other that when they've called themselves perfectly other names first.
1: We've done something horribly wrong. Yeah, Lane.
2: <laughs> Is it nearly seven?
1: Well, that's Nine the five. end of the act though. Just, Gwendolyn really needs coming. to come oh. back. I, I wouldn't <laughs> well, have said anything if I thought I could salvage that. it. Gwendolyn comes, yeah. What? well she comes in after the whole isn't it Newly seven thing. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. Does she? Yes. No. I don't know why we were on. Fuck, I'm so sorry.
2: It's okay, that's fine. We need I legit need was like,
1: we're, we're getting to the end of the acting, Gwendolyn didn't come in yet and everything's ruined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't do that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do I would rather like to see Cecily. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, everything was perfect, and I just got scared. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't did skip something. What, um, I don't know that we skipped anything major. I, I just thought for we, sure, for some reason, that what I said. We didn't did the
2: capital appetite thing, did we? Uh, yeah. I said, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, we skipped no, we how to behave to a woman. No, we, no, we, just, we didn't. No, just froze on women only do that when they have called each other a lot of others. It was just
5: freeze and dropped that line, and then
2: that. things went horribly
4: awry.
5: Yeah,
6: you were fine until then. And then Jack right. says...
4: You say, do you know it's nearly seven, and then he says, oh, it's always nearly seven, and that's the part we left out.
6: We didn't get to it. We didn't get to, yeah. And all of that's before Gwendolyn comes in? Yes. That's
2: right before I
1: come in. Wild! <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, well, wild. Was just, I'm so sorry. I just was like... Take it from the top. I guess I'm just so, like, maybe I'm just so in character, I'm like, well, it's seven, we're eating, let's go. Hey, you're...
5: you're Algernon's sugar is running low. You haven't had any food for ten minutes. <laughs> Alright,
0: um, let's go back to... They will be calling each other sister. Let's try it again. <laughs> Much. I'm so sorry. Calvin, can you take it from
2: there? <laughs> the truth isn't something one just blurts out to people. Gwendolyn and Cecily are perfectly sure to become fast friends. I'll bet you anything you like that within half an hour of them meeting each other, they will be calling each other sister.
1: Women only do that when they've called each other a lot of other things first. Now, if we want to get a good table at Willis's, we really ought to go and dress. You know it is nearly seven.
2: Oh, it is always nearly seven.
1: Well, I'm hungry.
2: I never knew you when you weren't.
1: What shall we do after dinner? Uh, go to the theater?
2: Oh, no, I loathe listening.
1: Hmm. Well, let's go to the club. Oh, no, I hate talking. We might trot round to the Empire at ten?
2: Oh, no, I can't stand looking at things. It is so silly.
1: Well, what shall we do, then? Nothing. It's awfully hard work, doing nothing. However, I don't mind hard work where there's no definite object of any kind.
0: Miss Fairfax.
1: Gwendolyn, upon my word.
5: Algy, kindly turn your back. I have something very important to say to Mr. Worthing.
1: Really, Gwendolyn, I
5: don't think I can allow this at all. Algy, you always adopt a strictly immoral attitude toward life. You're not quite old enough to do that.
2: Gwendolyn, darling.
5: Ernest, we may never be married. From the expression on Mama's face, I fear we never shall. Few parents pay any regard to what their children say nowadays. The old-fashioned respect for the young is fast dying out. Whatever influence I ever had over Mama, I lost at the age of three. But although she may prevent us from becoming man and wife, and I may marry someone else, and marry often, (laughs) Nothing she can possibly do can alter my eternal devotion to you.
2: My own darling.
5: The story of your romantic origin, as related to be my mama with unpleasing comments, has naturally stirred the deeper fibers of my nature. Your Christian name has an irresistible fascination. The simplicity of your character makes you exquisitely unknown to me. Your town address at the Albany I have. What is your address in the country?
2: Uh, The manor house, Walton, Hertfordshire.
5: There is a good postal service, I suppose. It may become necessary to do something desperate. That, of course, (laughs) will require serious consideration. I will communicate with you daily.
2: My own one.
5: How long do you remain in town? Till Monday. Good. Algie, you may turn round now. Thanks, I've turned round already. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You may also ring the bell.
2: You will let me see you to your carriage, my own darling? Certainly. I will see Miss Fairfax out. Yes,
1: sir. A glass of sherry Lane. Yes, sir. Tomorrow, Lane, I'm going bunburying. Yes, sir. I don't think I should be back until Monday. You can put up my dress clothes, my smoking jacket, and all the Bunbury suits. Yes, sir. I hope tomorrow will be a fine day, Lane.
0: Never is certain.
1: Lane, you're a perfect pessimist. <laughs> I do my best to give
2: satisfaction, sir. Now there's a sensible intellectual girl. The only girl I care about in all my life. What are you looking so amused at?
1: Oh, I'm just a little anxious about poor Bunbury is all.
2: You don't take care of your friend Bunbury will get you in a serious scrape one of these days.
1: I love scrapes. You're the only things that are never serious.
2: That is nonsense. You never talk anything but nonsense.
1: Nobody ever does.
4: (laughs) Tess probably doesn't know.
6: A utilitarian occupation as the water on the flowers is rather molten, student, than yours. Especially at a more intellectual pleasures await you. Your German grammar is on the table. Pray open it at page 15. We will repeat yesterday's lesson. But
7: I don't like German. It isn't at all a becoming language. I know perfectly well that I look quite plain after my German lesson.
6: Child, you know how anxious your guardian is that you should improve yourself in every way. He laid particular stress on your German as he was leaving for town yesterday. Indeed, he always lays stress on your German when he is leaving for town. Dear Uncle Jack is so very serious. Sometimes I think that he's so serious he cannot be quite well. Your guardian enjoys the best of health, and his gravity of demeanor is especially to be commended to one so comparatively young as he is. I know no one who has a higher sense of duty and responsibility. I suppose that is why he often looks a little bored when we three are together. Cecily, I am surprised at you. Mr. Worthing has many troubles in his life. Idle marion and triviality would be out of place in his conversation. You must remember his constant anxiety about that unfortunate young man, his brother. I wish Uncle
7: Jack would allow that unfortunate young man, his brother, to come down here sometimes. You might have a good influence over him, Miss Prism. I am sure you certainly would. You know German, and geology, and things of that kind influence a man very much. I don't
6: think that even I could produce any effect on a character that, according to his own brother's admission, is irretrievably weak and vacillating. Indeed, I am not sure that I would desire to reclaim him. I am not in favor of this modern mania for turning bad people into good people at a moment's notice. As a man sows, so let him reap. You must put away your diary, Cecily. I really don't see why you should keep a diary
7: at all. I keep a diary in order to enter the wonderful secrets of my life. If I didn't write them down, I should probably forget all about them. Memory, my dear Cecily, is the diary that we all carry about with us. Yes, but it usually chronicles the things that have never happened, or couldn't
6: possibly have happened. I believe memory is responsible for nearly all the three-volume novels that Moody sends us. Do not speak slightingly of the three-volume novels, Cecily. (laughs) I wrote one myself in earlier days. Did you really, Miss Prism? How wonderfully clever you
7: are. I hope it did not end happily. I don't like novels that end happily. They depress me so much. The good ended
6: happily and the bad unhappily.
7: That is what fiction
6: means. I suppose so, but it seems very unfair. And was your novel ever published? Alas, no. The manuscript was unfortunately abandoned. I use the word in the sense of lost or mislaid. To your child, these speculations are profitless. But I see dear Dr. Chalzwell coming up through the garden. Dr. Chalzwell, this is indeed a pleasure.
3: And how are we this morning? Miss Prism, you are, I trust, well.
7: Miss Prism has just been complaining of a slight headache. I think it would do her so much good to have a short stroll with you in the park, Dr. Choswell. Cecily, I have not mentioned anything about a headache. No, dear Miss Prism, I know that. But I felt instinctively that you had a headache. Indeed, I was thinking about that, and not about my German lesson
3: when hmm. the rector came in. I hope, Cecily, that you are not inattentive.
7: Oh, I'm afraid I am.
3: Hmm. hmm, that is strange. I mean, were I fortunate enough to be Miss Prism's pupil, I would merely hang upon her lips. I spoke metaphorically. Uh, my metaphor was drawn from bees. <coughs> uh, Mr. Worthing, I suppose, has not returned from town yet?
6: We do not expect him till Monday afternoon.
3: Hmm, Indeed. He, He is not one of those whose sole aim in life is enjoyment, as, by all accounts, that unfortunate young fellow, his brother, seems to be. But I must not disturb Egeria and her pupil any longer.
6: Egeria? My name is Letitia, Doctor.
3: A classical illusion, merely, drawn from the pagan authors. But I shall see you both, no doubt, at song.
6: I think, dear doctor, I will have a stroll with you. I find I have a headache after all, and a walk might do it good.
3: With pleasure, Miss Prism, with pleasure. We shall go as far as the schools and back.
6: That would be deli- del- That would be delightful. You will read your political economy in my absence. The chapter on the fall of the rupee, you may omit. It is somewhat too sensational. Even these metallic problems have their melodramatic side. Horrid political economy. Horrid geography.
7: Horrid, horrid German. Mr. Ernest Wormick has just driven over the station. He's gone Mr. Ernest Worthing, B4, the Albany W. Uncle Jack's brother. Did you tell him Mr. Worthing was yeah. in town?
0: Yes, miss. He seemed very much disappointed. I mentioned that you and this prison were in the garden He said he's very anxious to speak with you privately for a moment.
7: Ask Mr. Ernest Worthing to come here. I suppose you had better speak with the housekeeper about a room for him. Yes, miss. I have never met any really wicked person before. I feel rather frightened. I am so afraid he will look just like everyone else.
1: He does. You are my little cousin Cecily, I'm sure. You are under some strange mistake. I am
7: not little. In fact, I believe I am more than usually tall for my age. But I am your cousin Cecily. You I see from your card are my Uncle Jack's brother, my cousin Ernest, my
1: wicked cousin Ernest. Mm. Oh. uh, I'm not really wicked at all, Cousin Cecily. You mustn't think that I'm wicked.
7: If you are not, then you have certainly been deceiving us all in a very inexcusable manner. I hope you have not been leading a double life, pretending to be wicked and then being really good all the time. That would be hypocrisy.
1: Oh, well, uh, of course I have been rather reckless. I am glad to hear it. In fact, now you mention this subject, I have been very bad in my own small way.
7: I don't think you should be so proud of that. Though I'm sure it must have been very pleasant.
1: It is much pleasanter being here with you.
7: I can't understand how you are here at all. Uncle Jack won't be back till Monday
1: afternoon. Yes, that is a great disappointment, for I'm obliged to go up by the first train on Monday morning. I have a business appointment that I'm anxious to miss.
7: <laughs> Couldn't you miss it anywhere but Monday? No, the
1: appointment is in Monday.
7: Well, I know, of course, how important it is. Not to keep a business engagement, if one wants to retain any sense of the beauty of life. But still, I think you'd better wait till Uncle Jack arrives. I know he wants to speak to you about your emigrating.
1: About my what?
7: Your emigrating. He has gone up to buy your outfit.
1: I would certainly never let Jack buy my outfit. He has no taste in neckties at all.
7: I don't think you will require neckties. Uncle Jack is sending you to Australia.
1: Australia? I'd sooner die.
7: <laughs> well, he said at dinner on Wednesday night you would have to choose between
1: this world, the next world, and Australia. Oh, well, uh, the accounts I have received of Australia and the next world are not particularly encouraging. This world is good enough for me, Cousin Cecily.
7: Yes, but are you good enough for it?
1: I'm afraid I'm not that. That is why I'd like you to reform me. You might make that mission if you don't mind, Cousin Cecily.
7: I'm afraid I have no time. This
1: afternoon. Hmm. Then wouldn't you mind my reforming myself this afternoon?
7: It is rather quixotic of you, but uh, I think you should try.
1: I will! (sighs) I feel better already. You are looking a
7: little worse. That's because I'm hungry. (laughs) How (laughs) thoughtless of me. I should have remembered that when one is going to lead an entirely new life, one requires regular and wholesome meals. Won't you come in? Yes, might
1: I have a buttonhole first? I never have any appetite at all unless I've had a buttonhole first.
7: Amari Shalnia?
1: No, I'd sooner have a pink rose. Why? Because you are like a pink rose, come Cecily.
7: I don't think it can be right for you to talk to me like that. Miss Prism never says such things to me.
1: Then Miss Prism is a short-sighted old lady. You're the prettiest girl I've ever seen. (sighs) Miss Prism says that all good looks are a snare. They are a snare that any sensible man would like to be caught
7: in. Oh, I don't think I would care to catch a sensible man. I shouldn't know what to talk to him about. Ah. No.
6: You are too much alone, dear Charles. You should get married. A misanthrope, I could understand. A woman womanthrope, never.
3: Believe me, Miss Prism, I do not deserve so real logistic a phrase. The precept, as well as the practice of the primitive church, was distinctly against matrimony.
6: That is obviously the reason why the primitive church has not lasted up to the present day. And you do not seem to realize, dear doctor, that by persistently remaining single, a man converts himself into a permanent, public temptation. Men should be more careful. This very celibacy leads weaker vessels astray. But
3: is a man not equally attractive when married?
6: No married man is ever attractive, except to his wife.
3: And often I've been told not even to her.
6: That depends on the intellectual sympathies of the woman. Maturity can always be depended on. Ripeness can be trusted. Young women are uh, I spoke horticulturally. My metaphor was drawn from fruits. But where's Cecily?
3: Perhaps she followed us to the schools.
6: Mr. Worthing. Mr. Worthing? This is indeed a surprise we did not look for you till Monday afternoon.
2: I've returned sooner than I expected. Dr.
3: I hope you are well. Mr. Worthing, I hope that this garb of woe does not betoken some terrible calamity. My brother.
6: More shameful debts and extravagance?
3: Still leading his life of pleasure? Dead. Hmm. Your brother Ernest dead? Quite dead. Worthy, allow me to express my sincere condolences. You have at least have the consolation of knowing that you were always the most generous and forgiving of brothers. Poor Ernest. He had many faults, but it is a sad, sad blow. Very sad indeed. Were you with him at the end? No. He died abroad in Paris, in fact. I... I had a
2: telegram last night from the manager of the Grand Hotel. But was the cause of death
3: mentioned? A severe chill, it seems.
6: As a man sows, so shall he read.
3: Charity, dear Miss Prism. Charity! None of us are perfect. I myself am peculiarly susceptible to drafts. Will the interment take place here? No. He seemed to have expressed a desire to be buried in Paris. In Paris, I fear that this hardly points to any very serious state of mind. At the last, but you would no doubt wish me to make some slight allusion to this tragic domestic affliction next Sunday. My sermon on the meaning of the mountain in the wilderness can be adapted to almost any occasion, joyful, or as in the present case, distressing. I have preached it at harvest celebrations christenings, confirmations, on days of humiliation and festal days. The last time I preached it was in the cathedral, as a charity sermon on behalf of the Society for the Prevention of Discontent among the upper orders. The bishop, who was present, was much struck by some of the analogies I drew. Oh, you mentioned christenings, I think, Dr. Trosable?
2: I suppose you know how to christen, alright? I mean... I imagine you are continuously christening, aren't you?
6: It is, I regret to say, one of the rector's most constant duties in this parish. I've often spoken to the poorer classes on the subject, but they don't seem to know what thrift is.
3: But is there any particular infant in whom you are interested, Mr. Worthing? Your brother was, I believe, unmarried, was he not? Oh, yes.
6: People who live entirely for pleasure usually are.
2: But it is not for any child, dear doctor, I am very fond of children. No, it is in fact for myself that I would like to be christened uh, this afternoon, if you have nothing better to do. But surely you have been christened already? I don't recall anything about it. But have you any grave doubts on the subject? I certainly intend to have. Of course, I don't know if you think
3: it would be too much trouble, or if you think I'm a little too old now. Not at all. Indeed. The sprinkling and immersion of adults is a perfectly canonical practice. Immersion? You need have no apprehensions, my dear boy. Sprinkling is all that is required. Or, indeed, I think advisable. Our weather is so changeable. At what hour would you wish the ceremony to be performed? Oh, I might trot round about five. That'll suit you. Perfectly. Perfectly. In fact, I do have two ceremonies to perform at that time—a case of twins that occurred in one of the outlying cottages on your own estate. Poor Jenkins, the Carter, a most hard-working man.
2: <laughs> oh, I wouldn't want to be christened along with other babies; it would be childish.
3: What half past five do? Admirably, admirably. And now, Mr. Worthing, I must leave you now. I can no longer intrude into a house full of sorrow. I only beg you not to be too much bowed down by grief. What seem to us bitter trials are merely blessings in disguise.
6: This seems to me a blessing of an extremely obvious kind. Mm -hmm. Uncle Jack, oh, I am pleased to see you
7: back. But what horrid clothes Mm -hmm. you've got on. Do go and change them, Cecily.
3: My child, my child.
7: What is the matter, Uncle Jack? Do you look happy. You look as if you've had toothache, and I've got such a surprise for you. Who do you think is in the dining room? Your brother. Who? Your brother, Ernest. He arrived about half an hour ago.
2: What nonsense, I haven't got a brother. Oh,
7: don't say that. However badly he may have behaved to you in the past, he is still your brother. <coughs> you couldn't be so heartless as to disown him. I'll tell him to come out. And you will shake hands with him, won't
3: you, Uncle Jack? Mm -hmm. These are very joyful tidings.
6: After we had all been resigned to his loss, his sudden return seems to be peculiarly distressing.
2: My brother is in the dining room. I don't know what to make of all of it. I think it is all perfectly absurd.
1: Good heavens! Brother John i come down from town to tell you that I'm very sorry about all the trouble I've given you and that I intend to lead a better life in the future. Uncle Jack, you are not going to refuse
7: your own brother's hand.
2: I mm. will not take his hand. I find his coming down here disgraceful. He knows perfectly well why.
7: Oh, Uncle Jack, don't be nice. There is some good in everyone. Ernest has just been telling me about his poor invalid friend, Mr. Bunbury whom he goes to visit so often. And surely there must be much good in one who is kind to an invalid and leaves the pleasures of London to sit by a bed of pain.
2: Oh, he's been talking to you about Bunbury, has he?
7: Yes, he's told me all about poor Mr. Bunbury and his terrible state of health. Well, I won't have him
2: talk to you about Bunbury or about anything else. It is enough to drive one perfectly frantic.
1: Of course I admit the faults were all on my side, but I must say that I think that Brother John's coldness to me is peculiarly painful, especially considering it's the first time I've come here. Mm. Uncle Jack, if you don't shake hands with Ernest, I will never forgive you. Never forgive me? Never,
7: never, never.
2: Well, it shall be the last time I shall ever do it.
3: It is wonderful, is it not? See so perfect the reconciliation. I think we shall leave the two brothers together.
6: Cecily, you will come with us. Certainly, my little task of reconciliation is over.
3: You have done a beautiful action today, dear child.
7: We must not be premature in our judgments. I feel very happy.
2: How <laughs> do you, young scoundrel? Must get out of this place at once. I don't allow Bunbury in here.
0: Put Mr. Ernest's things in the room next to yours, sir. I suppose that's all right? What? Mr. Ernest's luggage, sir. I've unpacked it in the room next to your
1: His luggage?
0: Yes, sir. Three portmanteaus, a dressing case, two hat boxes, and a large luncheon basket.
1: I'm afraid I can't stay more than a week this time. Merriman, order the dog cart at once. Mr. Ernest has been suddenly called back to town. Yes, sir. What a fearful liar you are, Jack. I haven't been called back to town at all.
2: Yes, you have.
1: I haven't heard anyone call me.
2: Your duty as a gentleman calls you back.
1: My duty as a gentleman has never interfered with my pleasures in the smallest degree.
2: I can quite understand that.
1: Well, Cecily is a darling.
2: You are not the talk of Miss Cardew that way. I don't like it.
1: Well, I don't like your clothes. You look perfectly ridiculous, and then why on earth don't you go up and change? It is perfectly childish to be in deep mourning for a man who is actually staying for a whole week with you in your house as a guest. I call it grotesque.
2: You are certainly not staying with me for a whole week as a guest or as anything else. You've got to leave by the 4-5 train.
1: Well, I certainly won't leave you so long as you're in mourning. It would be most unfriendly. If I was in mourning, you would stay with me, I suppose. I should think it very unkind if you didn't.
2: Well, will you go if I change my clothes?
1: Yes, if you're not too long. <coughs> Never saw anyone take so long to dress and with such little result. Well,
2: at any rate, it's better than always being overdressed as you are.
1: If I am occasionally a little overdressed, I make up for it by being always immensely overeducated.
2: Your vanity is ridiculous, your conduct an outrage, and your presence in my garden utterly really absurd. But, you have got to catch the four or five, but I wish you a pleasant journey back to town. This Bungaree, as you call it, has not been a great success for you.
1: I think it has been a great success. I am in love with Cecily and that is everything. I must see her before I go and make arrangements for another Bunbury. Ah, oh, there she is. I merely came back to water the roses.
0: Yeah. I
1: thought you were with Uncle Jack. He's gone to fetch the dog cart for me. Oh, is he going to take you for a nice drive? He's going to send me away.
7: Then have we got to
1: part? I'm afraid so. It's a very painful parting.
7: It is always painful to part some people whom one is known for a very brief space Mm, the absence of old friends one can endure with equanimity.
0: But even a momentary separation from anyone to whom one has just been introduced is almost unbearable. Thank you. The dog cart is at the door, sir. It can wait, Merriman, for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yes, miss. Yes.
1: I hope I shall not offend you, Cecily, if I state quite frankly and openly that you seem to me to be in every possible way the. Visible personification of absolute perfection.
7: I think your frankness does you great credit, Ernest. If you will allow me, I will copy your remarks into my diary.
1: Do you really keep a diary? I'd give anything to look at it, may I?
7: Oh, no. You see, it is simply a very young girl's record of her own thoughts and impressions, and consequently meant for publication. When it appears in volume form, I hope you will order a copy. But pray, Ernest, don't stop. I delight in taking down from dictation. I have reached absolute perfection. You can go on, I am quite ready for more. <laughs> <coughs> oh, don't cough, Ernest. When one is dictating, one should speak fluently and not cough. Besides, I don't know how to spell cough.
1: Is Cecily! Ever since I first looked upon your wonderful and incomparable beauty, I have dared to love you wildly, passionately, devotedly, hopelessly.
6: I don't think
7: you should tell me you love me wildly, passionately, devotedly, hopelessly. Hopelessly doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? Cecily. The dog is waiting, sir.
1: Tell it to come round at the same hour next week. Yes, sir.
7: Uncle Jack would be very much annoyed to learn you are staying on till next week at the same hour.
1: Oh, I don't care about Jack. I don't care about anyone in the world but you. I love you, Cecily. You will marry me, won't you? You
7: you silly boy, of course. Why, we have been engaged for the last three months. (laughs) For the last three months? Yes, it will be exactly three months on Thursday.
1: But how did we become engaged?
7: Well, ever since Uncle Jack first confessed to us that he had a younger brother who was very wicked and bad, you of course have formed the chief topic of conversation between myself and Miss Prism. And of course a man who is much talked about is always very attractive. One feels there must be something in him after all. I dare say it was foolish of me, but I fell in love with you, Ernest.
1: Darling, but when was the engagement actually settled?
7: On the 14th of February last. Worn out by your entire ignorance of my existence, I determined to end the matter one way or another, and after a long struggle with myself, I accepted you one evening under this dear old tree here. The next day I bought this little ring in your name and this little bangle with the true lover's knot I promised you always to wear.
1: Did I give you this? It's very pretty, isn't it?
7: Yes, you've wonderfully good taste, Ernest. It's the excuse I have always given for your leading such a bad life, and this is the box in which I keep all your dear letters
1: my letters but but my dear sweet cecily i have never written you any letters
7: you need hardly remind me of that Ernest. i remember only too well that i was forced to write your letters for you i wrote always three times a week and sometimes oftener
1: oh do let me read them
7: oh no they would make you far too conceited the three you wrote after i had broken off the engagement are so beautiful and so badly spelled that even now i can hardly read them without crying a little
1: But was our engagement ever broken off?
7: Of course it was, on the 22nd of last March. You can see the entry if you like. Today I broke off my engagement with artists. I feel it is better to do so. The weather still continues charming.
1: But Cecily, I, why did you break it off? What had I done? I had done nothing at all. Cecily, I'm very hurt indeed to hear that you broke it off, particularly when the weather was so charming.
7: It would hardly have been a really serious engagement if it hadn't been broken off at least once. But I forgave you before the week was out.
1: Oh, what a perfect darling you are, Cecily.
7: My dear romantic boy. I hope your hair curls
1: naturally, does it? Yes, darling, with a little help from others. I'm so glad. You'll never break off our engagement again, ever, Cecily, will you? I
7: don't think I could break it off now that I've actually met you. Besides, of course, there is the question of your name.
1: Yes, of course.
7: (laughs) You mustn't laugh at me, darling, but it had always been a girlish dream of mine to love someone whose name was Ernest. There is something in that name that seems to inspire absolute confidence. I pity any poor married woman whose husband is not called Ernest.
1: But my dear child, do you mean to say that you could not love me if I had some other name? But what name? Oh, any name you like. Uh, Algernon, for instance.
7: But I don't like the name of Algernon. Hmm.
1: Well, my dear, sweet, loving little darling, I, I really don't see why you should object to the name of Algernon. I mean, it's not at all a bad name. In fact, it's rather an aristocratic name. More than half the traps who get into the bankruptcy courts are called Algernon. But, but seriously, Cecily, if I. If my name was Algie, couldn't you love me?
7: I might respect you, Ernest. I might admire your character, but I feel I should not be able to give you my undivided attention. <clears throat>
1: uh Cecily! Your rector here is, I suppose, uh, thoroughly experienced in all the rites and ceremonials of, of the church? Oh, yes. Dr. Charlesville is a most learned man. He has never written a single book, so you can imagine how much he knows. Mm-hmm. I must see him at once on a matter of a most important christening. I mean, uh, most important business. Oh. I shan't be away for more than half an hour.
7: Considering that we have been engaged since February the 14th and I only met you today for the first time, I think it is rather hard you should leave me for so long a period as half an hour. Oh. Couldn't you make it 20 minutes?
1: I'll be back in no time.
7: What an impetuous boy he is. I like his hair so much. I must enter his proposal in my diary.
0: Uh, Miss Fairfax has just come out to see Mr. Wording on very important business, Miss Fairfax states. Isn't Mr. Worthing in his library? Mr. Worthing went over in the direction of the rectory some time ago.
7: Pray ask the lady to come down here. Mr. Worthing is sure to be back soon, and you can bring tea. Yes, miss. (sighs) Miss Fairfax. I suppose one of the many good elderly women who are associated with Uncle Jack in some of his philanthropic work in London. I don't quite like women who are interested in philanthropic work. I think it is so forward of them. (laughs) Miss Fairfax. Pray let me introduce myself to you. My name is Cecily Cardew. Cecily Cardew? What a very sweet name.
5: Something tells me we are going to be great friends. I like you already more than I can say. My first impressions of people are never wrong. How nice of you to like me after we have known each other such a comparatively short time. Pray sit down. I may call you Cecily, may I not? With pleasure. And you will always call me Gwendolyn, won't you? If you wish. Then that is all quite settled, is it not? I hope so. Perhaps now might be a favorable opportunity for my mentioning who I am. My father is Lord Bracknell. You have never heard of Papa, I suppose? I don't think so. Outside the family circle, Papa, I am glad to say, is entirely unknown. I think that is quite as it should be. The home seems to me to be the proper sphere for the man. And certainly, once a man begins to neglect his domestic duties, he becomes painfully effeminate, does he not? And I don't like that. It makes men so very attractive. Mm. Cecily, mama whose views on education are remarkably strict, has brought me up to be extremely short-sighted. It is part of her system. So do you mind my looking at you through my glasses? Oh, not at all, dear Gwendolyn.
7: I am very fond of being looked at. You are here on a short visit, I suppose. Oh no, I live here.
5: Mm, Really? Your mother, no doubt, or some female relative of advanced years,
7: resides here also. No, I have no mother, nor in fact any relations. Indeed. My dear guardian, with the assistance of Miss Prism, has the arduous of looking after me. Your guardian? Yes, I am Mr. Worthing's ward. Oh, it is strange he never
5: mentioned to me that he had a ward. How secretive of him. Mm-hmm. He grows more interesting hourly. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, however, that the news inspires me with feelings of unmixed delight. I'm very fond of you, Cecily. I liked you ever since I met you. But I am bound to state that now that I know you are Mr. Worthing's ward, I can't help expressing a wish you were just a little older than you seem to be, and not so very alluring in appearance. In fact, if I may speak candidly. I pray do. I think that whenever one has anything unpleasant
7: to say, one should always be quite candid. Well, to speak with
5: perfect candor, Cecily. I wish you were fully 42,
4: hmm.
5: and more than usually plain for your age. Ernest he has a strong, upright nature. He is the very soul of truth and honor. Disloyalty hmm. would be as impossible to him as deception. But even men of the noblest possible moral character are extremely susceptible to the influence of the physical charms of others. Modern, no less than ancient history, supplies us with many most painful examples of what I refer to. If it were not so, indeed history would be quite unreadable.
7: Hmm. I beg your pardon, Gwendolyn. Did you say Ernest? Yes. Oh, but it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is my guardian. It is his brother, his elder brother. Ernest never mentioned to you that he had a brother. I am sorry to say they have not been on good terms
5: for a long time. Ah, that accounts for it. (laughs) And now that I think of it, I have never heard any man mention his brother. The subject seems distasteful to most men. Cecily, you've lifted a load from my mind. I was growing almost anxious. It would have been terrible if any cloud had come across a friendship like ours, would it not? Of course, you are quite, quite sure that it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who's your guardian. Quite sure.
7: In fact, I am going to be his. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Dearest Gwendolyn, there is no reason why I should make a secret of it to you. Our little county newspaper is sure to chronicle the fact next week. Mr. Ernest Worthing and I are engaged to be married. My darling
5: Cecily, I'm afraid there must be some slight error. Mr. Ernest Worthing is engaged to me.
7: The announcement will appear in the Morning Post on Saturday at the latest. You must be under some misconception. Ernest proposed to me exactly 10 minutes ago. Mm. It is certainly very curious, for he proposed to me yesterday afternoon
5: at 5.30. If you would care to verify the incident, pray do so. I never travel without my diary. One must always have something sensational to read in the train. I am so sorry, dear Cecily, if it is any disappointment to you, but I'm afraid
7: I have the prior claim. It would distress me more than I could tell you, dear Gwendolyn, if it caused you any mental or physical anguish, but I feel bound to point out that since Ernest proposed to you, he has clearly changed his mind.
5: If the poor fellow has found himself entrapped into any foolish promise, I shall consider it my
7: duty to rescue him at once, and with a firm hand. Whatever unfortunate entanglements my dear boy may have gotten himself into, I will never reproach him with it after we are married. Do you allude to me, Miss Cardew,
5: as an entanglement? You are (laughs) presumptuous. On an occasion of this kind, it becomes more than a moral duty to speak one's mind. It becomes a pleasure. Do you suggest,
7: Miss Fairfax, that I entrapped Ernest into an engagement? How dare you? This is no time for wearing the shallow mask of manners. When I see a spade, I call it
5: a spade. I am glad to say that I have never seen a spade. It is obvious that our social spheres have been widely different. Shall I tea here as usual,
7: Miss? Yes, as usual. Are there many interesting walks in the vicinity, Miss Cardew. Oh yes, a great many. From the top of one of the hills quite close, one can see five counties. Five pounds? <laughs> oh, well, I don't think I should like
5: that. I hate crowds. I suppose that is why you live in town. <laughs> Quite well kept garden this is, Miss Cardew. So glad you like it, Miss Fairfax. I had no idea there were any flowers in the country.
7: Oh, flowers are as common here, Miss Fairfax, as people are in London. <laughs>
5: Personally, I cannot understand how anybody manages to exist in the country. If anybody who is anybody does.
7: The country always bores me to death. Ah, this is what the newspapers call agricultural depression, is it not? I believe the aristocracy are suffering from it very much just at present. It is almost an epidemic amongst them, I have been told. May I offer you some tea, Miss Fairfax? Thank you. Detestable girl, but I require
4: tea.
5: Sugar? No, thank you. Sugar is not fashionable anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cake or bread and butter? Bread and butter, please. Cake is rarely seen in the best houses nowadays. My nature, and the gentleness of my disposition, but I
7: warn you, Miss Cardew, you may go too far. To save my poor, innocent, trusting boy from the machinations of any other girl, there are no lengths to which I would not go. From the moment I saw you, I distrusted you. I felt you were false
5: and deceitful. I am never deceived in such matters. My first impressions of people are
7: invariably right. It seems to me, Miss Fairfax, that I am trespassing on your valuable time. Hmm. No doubt you have many other calls of a similar character to make Hmm. in the neighborhood.
5: Ernest! My own
2: Ernest! Cecily, Gwendolyn, darling.
5: A moment. Hmm. May I ask if you are engaged to this young
7: lady?
2: To Dear little Cecily, of course not. Or put such an idea into your pretty little head.
7: Thank you. You may. I knew there must be some misunderstanding. The gentleman whose arm is at present around your waist is my dear guardian, Mr. John Worthing. I beg your pardon? This is Uncle Jack. Jack? Oh! Here is your (laughs) mist. My own love. A moment. May I ask, are you engaged to be married to this young lady?
1: To what young lady?
7: Oh, oh, Gwendolyn.
1: good heavens, Gwendolyn.
7: Yes, to good heavens, Gwendolyn. I mean, to Gwendolyn. Of course
1: not. What could have got such an idea into a pretty
7: little head? Thank you. You may.
5: I felt there was some slight error, Miss Cardew. The gentleman who is now embracing you is my cousin, Mr. Algernon Moncrief. Algernon Moncrief? <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you called Algernon?
1: I cannot deny it. Oh, is your name really John?
2: I could deny it, if I liked I could deny anything if I liked. But the truth is, my name is John. It has been John for years.
7: It seems to me a gross deception has been practiced on the both of us. My poor wounded Cecily. My sweet wronged Gwendolyn. You will call me sister, will you not? (laughs) There is just one question I would like to be allowed to ask my guardian. An admirable idea. Mr. Worthing, there is just one question I would like
5: to be permitted to put to you. Where is your brother Ernest? We are both engaged to be married to your brother Ernest, so it is a matter of some importance for us to know where your brother Ernest is
2: at present. Gwendolyn, Cecily, it is very painful for me to be forced to speak the truth. It is the first time in my life that I have ever been reduced to such a painful position, and I am really quite inexperienced in doing anything of the kind. But, to put it frankly, I have no brother, Ernest. I have no brother of any kind. In fact, I have never had a brother, and I have not the slightest intention of ever having a brother in the future.
5: No brother at all? None. Had you never a brother of any kind?
2: Never. Not even of any kind.
5: It seems quite clear, dear Cecily, that neither of us has engaged to be married to anyone.
7: It is not a very pleasant position for a young girl suddenly to find herself in, is it? Huh. Let us go into the house. You hardly venture to come after us there. No, men are so cowardly, aren't they?
2: (laughs) This ghastly state of things is what you call bunburying, I suppose.
1: Yes, and a wonderful bunbury it is. The most wonderful bunbury I ever had in my life. You have
2: no right whatsoever to bunbury here.
1: That is absurd. One has a right to bunbury, wherever one chooses. Any serious bunburyist knows that. Serious
2: bunburyist?
1: Good heavens! Well, one ought to be serious about something if one is to get any amusement in life. I happen to be serious about bunburying. What on earth you are serious about, I haven't got the remotest idea. About everything, I should fancy, is such an absolutely trivial nature.
2: Well, the only small satisfaction I have in this whole wretched business is that you're. Friend Bunbury is quite exploded. You
1: won't be able to
2: trot down to the country quite as often as you're used to, and quite a good thing that is, too.
1: Your brother is a little off color, isn't he, dear Jack? You won't be able to go up to London quite so often as your wicked custom was, and not a bad thing either.
2: And as for your conduct toward Miss Cardew, I find you're taking me in such a sweet simple, innocent girl like that, quite inexcusable, to say nothing of the fact that she's my ward.
1: I can see no possible defense at all for your deceiving a brilliant, clever, thoroughly experienced young lady like Gwendolyn, to say nothing of the fact that she's my cousin.
2: I wanted to be married to Gwendolyn, that is all. I love her.
1: Well, I wanted to be engaged to Cecily. I adore her.
2: There's certainly no chance whatsoever of you marrying Miss Cario.
1: I don't see much likelihood, Jack, of you and Miss Fairfax ever being united.
2: Well, that is certainly not any business of yours.
1: If it was my business, I wouldn't talk about it. It's very vulgar to talk about one's business. Only people like stockbrokers do that, and then merely at dinner parties.
2: How you can sit there calmly eating muffins, I can't comprehend. I find it to be perfectly heartless.
1: Well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated manner, I would probably get butter on my cuffs. One should always eat muffins quite calmly. It is the only way to eat them.
2: I mean, it is harmless to be eating at all under the circumstances when we are in this terrible trouble.
1: When I am in trouble, eating is the only thing that consoles me. Indeed, when I am in really great trouble, as anyone who knows me intimately will tell you, I refuse everything except food and drink. Mm -hmm. Right now, I am eating muffins because I am unhappy. Besides, I'm particularly fond of muffins.
2: Well, you need not eat them all in that greedy way.
1: (laughs) I wish you would have tea cake. I don't like tea cake. Good heavens.
2: I suppose a man may eat his own muffins in his own garden.
1: But you have just said it was perfectly heartless to eat muffins. (laughs) I said it
2: was perfectly heartless of you under the circumstances. This This is a different matter.
1: That may be, but the muffins are the same.
2: (laughs) 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 Now, John, I wish to goodness you would go.
1: Well, you can't send me off without giving me some dinner. (laughs) I never go without my dinner, (laughs) no one ever does. Except vegetarians and people like that. Besides, I've just made arrangements with Dr. Chausuble to be christened at a quarter to six under the name of Ernest.
2: I wish to goodness you would let that nonsense go. I have made arrangements myself to be christened with Dr. Chausible at 5.30, and I naturally will be taking the name of Ernest. Gwendolyn would wish it. We can't both be christened, Ernest. It would be absurd. Besides, I have every right to be christened. There is no evidence at all that I've ever been christened before by anybody. And... I certainly think that I never have been. So does Dr. Chausible. For you, it's an entirely different matter. You have been christened already.
1: Yes, but I haven't been christened for years. Yes, but you have been christened.
2: That is the important
7: point.
1: Quite so. So I know my constitution can stand it. If you're not quite sure about your ever having been christened at all, I dare say it's very dangerous you're venturing on it now. It might make you quite unwell. You can hardly have forgotten that someone very closely related to you was nearly carried off in Paris this week by a severe chill.
2: Yes, but you said so yourself that a severe chill is not hereditary.
1: I know it used to be, but I dare say it is now. Science is always making such wonderful improvements in things.
3: That is nonsense.
1: Jack, you were at the muffins again. I wish you wouldn't. There are only three left. I told you what? I was particularly fond of muffins.
2: But well, I hate tea cake.
1: Why on earth, then, do you allow it to be served up for your guests? What ideas you have of hospitality?
2: Algy, I wish to goodness you would go. I've asked you to leave. Why don't you go?
1: Well, I haven't finished my tea yet. And there's one muffin <laughs> left. <laughs> okay, leave it off. So, leave the lights off longer for them to get off. Go to the exit sign. There you go.
5: Talking. When I stop playing. Okay. The fact that they did not follow us at once into the house, as anyone else would have, seems to me to show that they have some sense of shame left. So they have been even in-
7: does it not? Yes, dear, if you can believe me. I don't, but that does not affect the wonderful beauty of his answer. True, in matters of grave
5: importance, style, not sincerity, is the vital thing. Mr. Worthing, what explanation can you offer me for pretending to have a brother? Might it be so that you could come up to town as often as possible to see me? Can
2: you doubt it, Miss
5: Fairfax? I have the gravest doubts upon the subject, but I intend to crush them. This is not the moment for German skepticism. Both their explanations seem to be quite satisfactory, especially Mr. Worthing's. That seems to me
7: to have the stamp of truth upon it. I am more than content with what Mr. Moncrief said. His voice alone inspires one with absolute credulity. Then you think we should forgive them? Yes. I mean,
5: no. True, I have forgotten. There are principles at stake which one cannot surrender. Which of us should tell them? The task is not a pleasant one. Could we not both speak at the (laughs) same time? An excellent idea, and you really always speak at the same time as other people. Will you take the time for me? Certainly.
7: Your Christian names are still an insuperable barrier. That is all. Our A Christian, Christian names? Name.
5: Is, is that all? all?
7: But we, we are, are to be christened, christened this afternoon.
2: This
5: afternoon. Oh. For my sake you are prepared to do this terrible thing. I am. To please me, you are ready to face this fearful ordeal. I am. How absurd to talk of the quality of the sexes. Where questions of self-sacrifice are concerned, men are infinitely beyond us.
2: We are.
7: They have moments of physical courage which we women know absolutely <laughs> nothing.
0: <laughs> Darling. 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 Lady Brockdale's an the woman. I don't know where she is.
7: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, man. Well, wow. so cool. they can just so how, how, are, how are those
7: muffins? We love. How are those muffins here? They Thanks. taste
1: like repentance. <laughs>
4: A physical weakness in the old. A sir, of my daughter's sudden flight by her trusty maid, whose confidence I purchased by means of a small coin. I followed her at once by a luggage train. Her unhappy father is, I am glad to say, under the impression that she is attending a more than usually lengthy lecture by the University Extension Scheme on the influence of a permanent income on thought. I do not. I do not propose to undeceive him. Indeed, I have never undeceived him on any question. I would consider it wrong, but you will clearly understand that all further communication between yourself and my daughter must cease immediately from this moment. On this point, as indeed on all points, I am firm.
2: I am engaged to be married to Gwendolen, Lady Bracknell. You
4: are nothing of the kind, sir. And now, as regards to Algernon, Algernon.
1: Yes, Aunt Augusta.
4: May I ask if it is in this house that your friend Mr.
1: Bunbury resides? Uh, oh, no, Bunbury doesn't live here. B- Bunbury is is somewhere else at present. In 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 fact,
4: Bunbury is dead, dead. When did Mr. Bunbury die? His death must have been extremely sudden. So, oh, I killed
1: Bunbury this afternoon. I mean. Poor Bunbury died this afternoon. What did he die of? Oh, uh, Bunbury? Oh, he was quite exploded.
4: Exploded? Was he a victim of a revolutionary outrage? I was not aware of Mr.
1: Bunbury's interested in social legislation. If so, he is well
6: punished for his
1: morbidity. Dear Aunt Augusta, what I mean to say is, poor Bunbury was found out. The the doctors found out that, that Bunbury could not live, and so poor Bunbury died.
4: Mm. He seems to have had great confidence in the opinion of his physicians. I'm glad, however, that he made up his mind at last and acted under proper medical advice. Mm. Now that we have Mr. Bunbury out of the way, I ask Mr. Worthing, who is this young person whose hand my nephew Algernon is holding in Peculiarly unnecessary manner.
2: That lady is Miss Cecily Cardew, my ward.
1: I'm engaged to be married to Cecily, Aunt Augusta. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Mr. Moncrief
7: and I are engaged to be married, to Lady Bracknell.
4: <sighs> I do not know if there's something peculiarly exciting in the air of this particular part of Hertfordshire, but the number of engagements that go on seems to me considerably above the proper average that statistics had laid down for our guidance. I think some preliminary inquiry on my part might not be out of place. Mr. Worthing, is Miss carter's family at all related to any of the larger railway stations <laughs> in London? I merely desire information. Before yesterday, I had no idea that there were any families or persons whose origin was a terminus.
2: Miss <clears throat> Cardew is the granddaughter of late Mr. Thomas Cardew of 149 Belgrave Square, SW, Gervais Park, Dorking, Surrey, and the Sporan, Fiveshire, N.B.
4: That is not unsatisfactory. Three addresses always inspire confidence, even in tradesmen. But what proof have I of their authenticity?
2: I have carefully preserved the court records of the period, and they are open to your inspection, Lady Bracknell.
4: I have known strange errors in that publication.
2: Miss Carty's family solicitors are Misters Markby, Markby, and Markby.
4: Markby, Markby, and Markby. A firm of the highest position in their profession. Indeed, I have been told that one of the Mr. Markbys is occasionally to be seen at dinner parties. So far, I am satisfied.
2: A very kind of you, Lady Bracknell will be also pleased to hear that I have records and certificates of Miss Cardew's birth, baptism, whooping call, registration, vaccination, confirmation, and the measles, both the English and German variety.
4: A life full of experiences, though perhaps a bit more than is appropriate for a young girl. I myself am not in favor of premature experiences. Come, Gwendolyn, the time approaches for our departure. I had better ask you, as a matter of form, Miss Worthing, if Miss Carter has any little fortune.
2: Oh, about 130,000 pounds in the funds, that is all. Good day, Lady Bracknell. So pleased to have seen you.
4: A moment, Mr. Worthing. 150,000 pounds. And in the funds. Oh, Miss Carter seems a most attractive young lady now that I look at her. So few young girls of the present age. Have any really solid qualities, qualities that last and grow with time. We live, I regret to say, in an age of surfaces. Come over here, dear child. Pretty girl, your dress is sadly simple and your hair is almost as nature might have left it, but we can soon alter all that. A thoroughly experienced French maid produces a really marvelous result in a very brief space of time. I remember recommending one to young lady Lansing, and after three months, her own husband did not know her.
2: And after six months, nobody knew her.
4: Kindly turn around, dear child. Ah, the psyche is what I want. Ah, just as I expected. There are distinct social possibilities in your profile. The two weak points of our age are its want of principle and its want of profile. The chin a little higher, dear. Style largely depends on the way the chin is worn. They're wor- worn very high just at present. Algernon.
1: Yes, Aunt Augusta.
4: There are distinct social possibilities in this cardi's profile.
1: <laughs> Cecily is the kindest, sweetest, prettiest girl in the entire world, and. I don't care topics about social possibilities.
4: Oh, Algernon, never speak disrespectfully of society. Only people who can't get into it do that. (coughs) My dear, of course you know that Algernon has only his debts to depend upon, but I do not approve of mercenary marriages. When I married Lord Bragnall, I had no fortune of any kind, but I never dreamed for a moment of allowing that to stand in my way. (coughs) Well, I suppose I must give my consent.
1: Thank you, Aunt Augusta.
4: Cecily, you may kiss me. Mm. Thank you, Lady Bracknell. You may call me Aunt Augusta for the future. Thank you, Aunt Augusta. The marriage, I think, had better take place quite soon. Thank you, Aunt Augusta. To be frank, I'm not in favor of long engagements. They allow people to find out each other's character before marriage, which I think is never advisable.
2: Pardon me for interrupting you, Lady Bracknell, but Cecily Carter cannot be married without my consent as I am her guardian, and that consent I absolutely decline to give.
4: Upon what grounds? Algernon is an extremely, I may almost say, an ostentatiously available young man. He has nothing, but he looks everything. What more can one desire?
2: It pains me very much to have to speak frankly about your nephew, Lady Bracknell, but... I do not approve at all of his moral character. I find him to be untruthful.
4: Untruthful, my nephew Algernon? Impossible. He is an Oxonian.
2: I'm afraid there can be no doubt about the matter. This afternoon, when I was was out of town on a question of romance, he obtained admission to my house under the false pretense of being my brother. He then proceeded to drink, I've just been informed by my butler, entire pint bottle of my Pierre Jouet Brut 89, a wine I was specially reserving for myself. He then proceeded to alienate, over the course of an afternoon, to alienate the affections of my only ward, and he subsequently stayed to tea and devoured every single muffin. What makes his conduct all the more heartless is that he knew from the beginning that I have no brother, and I do not intend to ever have a brother of any kind. I had told him that myself yesterday afternoon.
4: <clears throat> uh, Mr. Worthing, after careful consideration, I have decided to entirely overlook my nephew's conduct to you. Mm-hmm.
2: How very kind of you, Lady Bracknell. However, my own decision is unalterable. My consent, I decline to give.
7: Uh, come here, dear child. How old are you? Well, I'm really only eighteen, but I always admit to twenty when I go to evening parties. You are perfectly right in making some slight alteration. Indeed,
4: no woman should ever be quite accurate about her age. It looks so calculating. Eighteen, but admitting to twenty at evening parties. Well, I think it will not be very long before you are of age and free from the restraints of tutelage, so I don't think your guardian's consent is, after all, a matter of any importance.
2: Uh, Pardon me for interrupting you again, Lady Bracknell, but I must point out that, according to the terms of her grandfather's will, Cecily does not come of age until she is 35.
4: (laughs) I do not think that is a matter of grave concern. 35 Mm. is a very attractive age. Mm. London society is full of women of the very highest birth who have remained 35 for years. Lady Dumbledon is an instance in point. To my own knowledge, she has been 35 ever since she arrived at the age of 40, which was many years ago now. (laughs) I see no reason why our dear Cecily should not be even still more attractive at the age you mentioned than she is at present. There will be a large accumulation of property.
7: Mm -hmm. Algy, could you wait for me until I was 35? Mm -hmm. Of course I could. You know I could. Yes, I felt it instinctively. (laughs) But I couldn't wait all that time. I hate waiting even five minutes for anybody. It always makes me rather cross. I am not punctual myself, I know, but I do quite like punctuality in others, and waiting, even to be married, is quite out of the question.
1: Then what are we to do, Cecily?
7: I don't know, Mr. Moncrief.
1: (laughs) My dear
4: Mr. Worthing, as Miss Cardew states positively that she cannot wait till she is thirty-five, a remark which I'm about to say reflects a somewhat impatient nature, Mm -hmm. I would beg of you to reconsider your decision. My
2: dear Lady Bracknell, the decision is entirely within your own hands. The moment that you consent to my marriage with Gwendolyn, I will happily approve of the union of your nephew and my ward.
4: What you propose is entirely out of the question.
2: Then it looks like a passionate celibacy is all that any of us have to look forward to.
4: That is not the destiny I propose for Gwendolyn. Algernon, of course, can do as he please. Time approaches for our departure. We have not a moment to lose. We've already missed five, if not six, trains. To miss any more might subject us to comment on the platform.
3: Everything is quite ready for the christenings. So.
4: The christening, sir? Is not that somewhat premature?
3: Both of these gentlemen have expressed a desire for immediate baptism.
4: At their age, the idea is grotesque and irreligious. Algernon, I forbid you to be baptized. I will not learn <laughs> such excesses. Lord Bracknell would be highly displeased if he learned that this was the way in which you wasted your time and money.
3: Am I to understand that there are to be no christenings at all this afternoon? I do not think that, as things are now, would be of much practical value to either of us, Dr. Trausable. I am sorry to hear such sentiments from you, Mr. Worthing. They savor those of the Anabaptists—their views, uh, anyway—views that I have completely refuted in four of my unpublished sermons. However, as your mood, as your present mood seems to be one peculiarly secular, I will depart for the church at once. Indeed, I have just been informed by the pew opener that for the last hour and a half, Miss Prism has been waiting for me in the vestry. Miss Prism?
4: Did I hear you mention a Miss Prism?
3: Yes, Lady Bracknell. I am on my way to join her.
4: Pray allow me to detain you for a moment. Mm -hmm. This matter may prove to be one of great importance to Lord Bracknell and myself. Is this Miss Prism of female of repellent aspect remotely connected with education?
3: She is the most cultivated of ladies and the very picture of respectability.
4: It is obviously the same person. May I ask what position she holds in your
2: household?
3: Uh, I am a celibate, madam. Miss Prism,
2: Lady Bracknell, has for the last three years been Miss Cardew's esteemed governess and valued companion.
4: Despite, in spite of what I hear of her, I must see her at once. Let her be
6: sent for.
3: She approaches. She's nigh.
6: I was told you expected me in the vestry, dear canon. I've been waiting for you there for an hour and three quarters. Prism! Come here, Prism! Mm. Prism!
4: Where is that baby? Twenty-eight years ago, Prism, you left Lord Brighton's house, number 104, Upper Grosvenor Street, with a perambulator containing a baby of the male sex. You never returned. A few weeks later, after the elaborate investigation of the Metropolitan Police, the perambulator was discovered standing by itself at midnight in a remote corner of Bayswater. It contained the manuscript. Of a three-volume novel of more than usually revolting sentimentality.
6: But the baby was not there. Prism, where is that baby? Lady Bracknell, I admit with shame that I do not know. I only wish I did. The plain facts of the case are these. On the morning of the day you mention, a day that is forever branded on my memory, I prepared as usual to take the baby out in its perambulator. I had also with me a somewhat old but capacious handbag, in which I had intended to place the manuscript of a work of fiction I had written during my few unoccupied hours. In a moment of mental abstraction, for which I never can forgive myself, I deposited the manuscript in the bassinet and put the baby in the handbag.
2: But where did you place the handbag?
6: Do not ask me, Mr. Worthen.
2: Miss Prism, it is of vital importance that I know where you placed the handbag that contained that infant.
6: I left it in one of the larger, in the cloakroom of one of the larger railway stations in London.
2: What railway station?
6: Victoria, the Brighton Marine.
2: I must retire to my room momentarily.
3: Gwendolyn, wait here for me.
5: If you are not too long, I will wait
4: here all my life.
3: What do you think this all means, Lady Bracknell?
4: I dare not even suspect, Dr. Chauzable. I need hardly tell you that in families of high position, strange coincidences are not supposed to occur. They are not considered the thing.
7: Uncle Jack seems strangely agitated.
3: Your guardian has a very emotional nature. I do
4: not like all this noise. It sounds as if if he was having an argument. I dislike arguments of any kind. They are always bolder and often convincing.
3: It has stopped now.
6: Examine it carefully before you speak. The happiness of more than one life depends on your answer. It seems to be mine. Yes, here's the injury received through the upsetting of a gower Street omnibus in younger and happier days. Here's the stain on the lining caused by the explosion of a temperance beverage, an incident that happened at Leamington. And here on the lock are my initials. I'd forgotten that in an extravagant mood I had them placed there. The bag is undoubtedly mine. I am delighted to have it so unexpectedly restored to me. It has been a great inconvenience being without it all these years.
2: More is restored to you than the handbag, for I was the infant that you placed in it. You? Yes.
6: Mother! Mr. Worthing, I am unmarried.
2: Unmarried? (laughs) You must admit that is a serious blow. But cannot an act of repentance wipe out an act of folly? Why must we cast a stone against one who has suffered? Why is there one law for men and another law for women? Mother, I forgive you!
6: Mr. Worthing, there is some error. There is the lady who can tell you who you really are.
2: Lady Bracknell, I hate to seem inquisitive, but... Could you kindly tell me who I am?
4: But I have to say it will not altogether please you. You are the son of my poor sister, Mrs. Moncrief, and consequently Algernon's older brother.
2: Algernon's elder brother? I knew I had a brother. Cecily, I always told you I had a brother. How could you ever doubt it? I had a brother. Miss Prism. My unfortunate brother. Dr. Trausable. My unfortunate brother. Gwendolyn. My unfortunate brother. Algie, you young scoundrel, you've got to behave better to me in the future. You've never acted like a brother in all your life.
1: Well, not till today, old boy, I admit. I did my best, though, uh, though I was out of practice.
5: My own one, but what own are you? What is your Christian name now that you've become someone else?
2: I'd quite forgotten that matter. I suppose your decision on the subject of my name is irrevocable, I suppose?
5: I never
7: change, except in my affections. What a noble nature you have, Gwendolyn.
2: Then we get better get the matter cleared up at once. Aunt Augusta, at the moment when I was placed in the handbag, had I been christened already,
4: Every luxury that money could buy, including christening, was lavished on you by your fond and doting parents. Yes, but what name was I
2: given? Let me know the worst. Being the eldest
4: son, you were naturally christened after, after your father.
2: Yes, but what was my father's Christian name?
4: I cannot at the present moment recall what the general's Christian name was. But he had one. I have no doubt. He was an eccentric, I admit but only in later years, and that was the result of the Indian climate, and marriage,
1: and indigestion, and other things of that kind.
2: Algy, can you recollect what our father's Christian name was?
1: My dear boy, we were never even on speaking terms. He died before I was a year old.
2: guess his name would appear in the army lists of the period, would it not?
4: The general was essentially a man of peace, and except in his domestic life, but I'm sure his name would appear in any military
2: directory. The army records of the last 40 years are here. These delightful books should have been my constant study. M. Generals, Malum, Moxham, Magley, Markley, Migsby. Oh, what terrible names so. they all have. mobs Moncrief. Lieutenant, 1840, captain, lieutenant colonel, colonel, general, 1969, Christian name, Ernest John. I told you my name was Ernest, didn't I? I mean, now it naturally is Ernest.
4: Yes, the general's name was Ernest. I knew there was a reason why I hated that name.
5: Ernest, my own Ernest, I felt from the first that you could have no other name.
2: What a strange thing it is for a man to find out that all his life he's been telling the truth. Can you ever forgive me?
5: I can, for I feel you are sure to change.
2: My own one. Letitia.
0: Frederick, at last. Cecily, at last.
2: Gwendolyn, Cat last!
0: My nephew, you've seen
4: Hesha showing signs of triviality.
2: On the contrary, Aunt Augusta, I have now, for the first time in my life, realized the vital importance of being earnest.
0: Yay, bravo. applause. Blah, blah. Gail, you're going to play music here, right? Uh, yeah.
4: <sighs> and then we get Lane, and then we take a bow, and we're out. Hi, this is Michelle. You just heard the final dress rehearsal for The Importance of Being Earnest, an Upstart Arts production. Um, The cast in Order of Appearance is Katie Durgan as Lane and then Merriman, Emily Hill as Algernon, Calvin Emery as Jack, Um, Ginger Bova as Lady Bracknell, Elise Baer as Gwendolyn Fairfax, Emily Baer as Miss Prism. Tess Beckett as Cecily Cardew, um, Phil Rerich as the Canon Chausable. Is that everybody? Yeah. yeah. And then Sarah Otto was stage managing, um, I was directing, and Geld at the music. So we hope you enjoyed the dress rehearsal, and we will be doing a regular podcast in another couple of weeks. Take care. Why
6: did you stop doing